0: If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is Foundations, the radio ministry of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church, Sonora, California. We welcome you to our Sunday morning worship services under the leadership of Pastor David Bush. Stay tuned following today's program for more information about Oak Hill Presbyterian Church. Here now is today's message from Pastor Bush.
1: We're continuing our uh, study through uh, 1 Corinthians. We're at chapter six. Looking at verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul's gospel in a nutshell. Paul writes, uh, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And may God add his grace to the reading of this. As I told the children... The gospel, the euangelion, really translates to a good message, or we say good news, uh, and it really is to the Christian the the sweetest thing on earth is to know the gospel, and um, that gospel can be very difficult even for adults when somebody asks you, what is the gospel, to try to give a, a, a careful understanding of that. Uh, we can't just say, well, it's, and give one little sentence. We have to develop the idea. Well, it's sort of this good news, bad news sort of uh, 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 articulation of that truth. Uh, good news, bad news. And in some, some reform circles, um, that has been put in three Ways that all words, starting with a G, is there is guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so my sermon's going to be trying to combine both of those ideas. It's really going to be a two-point sermon, good news, bad news sort of deal. Uh, and then there's going to be one point of application. So we'll have the guilt, the gratitude, and then the um, uh, the guilt the grace and then the gratitude as the application. So let's look at these two points and one point of application today. I want to start by considering the hindrances to salvation. Uh, defining that by one word we would say it's guilt. This is going to be the bad news. And this I want to address two aspects of the bad news is first of all that there is a war raging. A war raging. John Bunyan, I think famously in his book, The Holy War, um, great analogy about a city named Mansoul that is being attacked by Diabolus and all of his minions. They're trying to attack the various gates to the city, the ear gate, the heart gate, the mind gate, and so forth. And so it is this battle to try to take over Mansoul Uh, And it really is that battle that goes on, a spiritual battle, a battle of worldviews, a battle that goes on in the world about uh, ideas and truth and error. Uh, We know that even as far as the garden, the devil was there deceiving the first parents, uh, coming with a different narrative than God had. God had said, thou shalt not eat, and the devil saying, oh, that's okay, you're, you're, you're surely not going to die if you eat from this tree. So the devil comes with his uh, falsehood and deception. Now, it really is a battle of two kingdoms. The scripture speaks of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of Satan. And the, se- the citizens of these two kingdoms are variously called uh, the saints in the kingdom of God and sinners in the kingdom of the evil one. Uh, There is the saved versus the unsaved. There's the sons of God and the sons of disobedience, and we could go on and on. Uh, But perhaps the most offensive to this culture today is uh, a description of the righteous and the unrighteous. And so this is the language that Paul uses, the unrighteous as a reference to those outside of that kingdom of God. And Paul tells us, with a sober warning, do not be deceived. Be on guard. Don't be deceived. And this little phrase here assumes that there must be some kind of a truth that we are to aspire to to take hold of, that there's a moral obligation to embrace that truth and to avoid the dangers of deception. And that danger that he warns the church at Corinth about is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. that's a theology that is not unique to Paul. It's not like he's invented this theology. It is really taught from Genesis through Revelation. But importantly, we remember how Christ himself spoke of seeking this kingdom as of the first importance for his hearers. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. And you'll remember where he went right after that teaching in the following chapter about the danger. The danger was found that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many good works in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you. And that's the deception. The deception that we as seasoned Christians, ought to take note of. That Christ wasn't warning just simply about rank, atheistic, hardcore unbelief, but the kind of deception that, that is within the visible church as well. Uh, so there is a, a danger that we need to watch out for in terms of worldviews that are at, um, at odds. And in the church... When we miss the truth, we are deceived, and that deception dishonors God. That is sin, and that brings guilt. So there's guilt if we miss the battle and are not victorious in that. Second point of the guilt is there is a human nature that we must overcome a human nature you know question is often put do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin in other words if we commit sin does that now make us a sinner or is there a nature to mankind that because we have this nature a sin nature we sin because we have that nature and of course uh, we sin because we are sinners is the teaching of scripture, even though it is true, actual sin, it does also make us a sinner as well. But uh, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There's your, your title. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're, here it is, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Born into a world, by nature, sinners, and we inherit all of that guilt, ultimately from Adam, and then our sins that proceed from them. Romans 5, 12 to 14 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So Adam, we learned about prophets in the The Sunday school today, how Elijah is a type of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. Uh, Scholars talk about a two Adam scheme that Adam, the first Adam, is a federal representative, one who is the one who God has sovereignly chosen to represent a people. And that people, under that representation, are subject to all of the consequences of the actions of that representative. And so we inherit, through Adam, according to Scripture, death. That death came, death spread to all men. Now, Paul's argument in Romans is, uh, if death is a consequence to sin, eat of this tree and you will surely die and not only you, but all of those who are under your representation, death spreads to all men. Paul's arguing, if if there is no law, you can't transgress that law. If there's no law, you can't have a transgression of it. You can't have sin. So why is it that people are dying from Adam until Moses comes and brings the law? There has to be a law that is binding the people between Adam and Moses. And death, as a consequence for sin, how do you account for that? And the answer is that Adam failed in the garden, and we become guilty in God's plan of his sin. So that... Has been debated and challenged in in church history over and over. But if you get that wrong, I believe there is a heavy consequence to pay for that. Simply put, Pelagius uh, battled an ideology, a theology of Augustine. Pelagius believed that Adam's sin was only for Adam, it only impacted him. And everyone, every child that's born is born with the same innocency as Adam. And so each individual was accountable for their own sin, and that it was possible, theoretically, to get through life sinless and never have a need for grace, theoretically. Now, Augustine thoroughly refuted Pelagius and taught the doctrine of original sin, that uh, Three-part guilt of Adam's sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature that is preserved in the Shorter Catechism, question 18, preserves the Augustinian view. Remember, Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy in 416 and then again in 418 at the Council of Carthage. Pelagius and Celestius were both excommunicated from the church for teaching this heresy And then it was in the Reformation, where the church had defected from the 400s, a slow, uh, you know, turning away from purely Augustinian theology. There was so much corruption, but it was an Augustinian monk, Luther, who brought to light Augustine's view and then it was Calvin, the scholar, who, who polished that theology up and who quoted in his Institutes for the Christian Religion uh, Augustine more than any other scholar, any other theologian. Hands down, the most influential body of theology was Augustine. And so um, this um, idea that was defended is that man has, a nat- in his natural state, the natural man has an inability to do the things that are necessary for salvation, that there is a spiritual deadness to the natural man. And so man is dependent upon God to give faith as a gift and then to cooperate with that gift in terms of maturing in that faith. And that doesn't uh, resonate well with the natural mind Uh, Most people in the natural estate want to believe that there is all sorts of potential to individual um, human nature. Now, what arose in that uh, context of Augustine and Pelagianism, soon a compromised view that didn't want to go so far as Augustine, but saw the dangers of Pelagianism, a view called semi-Pelagianism arose, where the view was that man is not dead in his sin and trespasses, and he doesn't have the potential to do whatever he wants, but he's somewhere in between, that man becomes seen as he's in a state where he is sick, and he just needs a little help. Um, He's compromised, that uh, through a free will and an individual choice, this is what initiates faith, the individual produces that faith, and then God comes in and adds grace to help mature that faith. That, too, was a position that was condemned as heresy in 529 at the Council of Orange. Now, semi-Pelagianism never did really die out in the church. We see it expressed, and it's typically in the minority position, until we see something of a resurgent in the resurgence of semi-Pelagianism uh, in uh, some of the teachings of the followers of James Arminius and um, some of the uh, teachings that arose out of that and has now become what I would argue is the dominant position in the church today. And I would argue here's one area. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived as, as a way of being in the visible church and falling short of what God has um, spoken in terms of that truth. There are a host of other views that would be in competition with Augustine's. Uh, One of the slogans that I believe is refuted in the text itself uh, that you may be familiar with is, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Now, it is true God hates sin, But it's equally true. God hates sinners. That's a a, a thorny part of this stem. (laughs) That's a hard teaching. God hates sinners? And the answer is yes. God hates sinners. Romans 9.13, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. It's not Esau's sins that God hates. Esau I've hated. Well, Pastor Dave, that's just speaking about natural. That's just national Jacob is Israel, and Esau are the Gentiles, or the unbelievers. Um, God still hates people, not sins, whether it's national or individual. Um, If you're not convinced by that, Psalm 5.5, you hate all who do iniquity. Sin is a what? People are whose. That uh, it's not sin that is judged to hell, but sinners. God's wrath abides on sinners, not their sin. Uh, you see the danger of this slogan God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But note in the text neither fornicators, not fornication, fornication isn't, it doesn't say fornication won't enter into the kingdom of God. Fornicators will not enter into the kingdom of God. Idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. God judges people for their sins. Now in this, it's those that are living in unrepentant sin, Unless you get the idea that this is, these are the only sins that will not inherit the kingdom of God, uh, the sobering news is that's only representative. Uh, we read Revelation twenty two fifteen. Added to that list that we have in 1 Corinthians six nine and ten, we could add dogs according to Revelation twenty two fifteen. Just maybe a, somewhat of a coarse description of the wicked. We add sorcerers, murderers, those who practice lying in that list, and there are others. The point is, God does hate sin, and he also hates sinners. And if God's hatred, his wrath, is abiding upon us, what a desperate state we are in. We, are, we have to be careful <laughs> about the deceiving things in the church. I'm woefully behind time. But let me just, uh, adding adjectives to to Christian. Uh, Ex-President Jimmy Carter said he was a born-again Christian, introduces this idea, which was really nothing more than a tautology. I'm a born-again Christian. Look, if you're born again, that makes you a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're born again. It's the same thing. It's like saying I'm a Christian Christian. And when you add adjectives to the word Christian, you run into problems. And there's a lot of deception out there. Some adjectives aren't just running you into a tautology, but some become an oxymoron. You've heard in the modern era people claiming to be a gay Christian. That's not a tautology. That's an oxymoron. If you are living in habitual homosexuality, you are not a Christian. You are not in the kingdom of God. If God's word is true, and I have to make a choice, do I believe what God says? Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I realize these are practicing. Homosexuals are not going to be in the kingdom of God. Practicing drunkards, practicing swindlers are not going to be in the kingdom of God. And when we, we substitute — see, here's where you can, you can see the fallacy of this. When we substitute these other adjectives, like Revelation 22:15, "If murderers are outside, could anybody say, "I'm a murdering Christian?" I'm a homosexual Christian. I'm a swindling Christian. I'm a thieving Christian. I I live my life, I have a passion for thieving and swindling people. Would you say you're a Christian? No. And so we can't give a pass. This is the deception in the church today. Without repentance, we will not see God. To err is human, but everybody gets a second chance. God's word says otherwise. You break God's law, at one point you're guilty of all, says James in uh, chapter 2, verse 10. The the sobering picture that God gives of the natural man is that there is no one, no one in their flesh that is good enough to enter into the kingdom of God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. It's the grim picture of those who are in Adam, born into this world. We are wrecked. We are hopeless. We are without any ability to gain the blessings of heaven in our own strength. That's the guilt. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And I'm completely out of time. (laughs) I could go on and show you the darkness of unregenerate man and his desperate need for grace. Suffice it to say, for point two, the means of salvation is that grace is Christ's unmerited favor. Or... I mean, more particularly, Christ's merited favor. Let me, I, I said unmerited. Christ's merited favor. Christ lived the life that Adam didn't live. I say there's a two-Adam scheme. the The type that Adam was is a picture of Christ by way of a contrast. Representatives, the two of them, but where Christ succeeds, Adam had failed. Adam demerited humanity. Christ merits humanity, a new humanity, a representative group under his federal headship. And the point that Paul is making is that through that grace, there is hope. Such were some of you, Paul is identifying those in Corinth, As guilty of these same sins that barred the practicing, the one who practiced those sins, such were some of you. But there's a past tense there. Do you see that? That you're no longer that. You're no longer those swindlers. You're no longer that drunkard. You're no longer the homosexual that you once were. You turned from that. How did that happen? Right, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to land on those with much more, uh, much more uh, detail. But the washing comes through confession. If we confess our sins, First John one nine, John says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness sanctified, you're set apart for God's purposes, and you were justified. That is that you were declared to be righteous through the gift of Christ's merits imputed to you, credit to you, just like Adam's guilt, now Christ's perfect righteousness given to you as a free gift. Do you see the beauty of the flower now? I mean, how how can you take that in? And be unmoved. That Christ's perfect righteousness is my only hope. I, I look back on my life in shame. Just utter disgust. And if you know something of your sin, if you've seen your own sin, and you can't see what God has done in providing a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, and we stand on that day and face Him. And we have a perfect Record, a sinless record. (laughs) Doesn't that undo all of the darkness? You take the thorns, that flower's beautiful. (laughs) It's got a thorny little ascension to the flower, but when you get to the flower, it's beautiful. Gosh, I want to lay, I just want to just land on that. But if you see the gospel as a human effort, that you're trying to get up there to God, you're going to fail. Christ is lovely. Christ is beautiful and the gratitude is that now we live in light of that perfect record given to us as a free gift and we say to our father i want to live for your glory i want to live on your terms i want to be in your house and i want to honor you and your commands and that's what the christian life is about it's guilt sobering it's grace precious grace and it's gratitude, obedience, that we become no longer sons of disobedience, but now sons of obedience. And may God grant us all the grace to be better in that. A few, a few verses that you can go back, jot those down, they're on your notes. Romans three twenty four to 26. Read that. Titus 3, 3 through 7. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Read those in your devotions and meditate upon what we've said here today and you'll flesh out some of that grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we simply don't appreciate grace. We ask again. We know that when we first came to Christ that you comforted us with the full assurance of knowing that our sins have been paid for. And we confess that as we grow, sometimes we're just not walking the kind of obedient lifestyle that we are called to. And so um, each of us here have room to repent. And so give us the strength and help us to truly live uh, in a consistent way with the truth of the sweet gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we sing now this song from heart redeemed how I love to proclaim it, and may this really be a a very part of the fabric of our soul that would, would give to you the glory in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Foundations, the radio ministry of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church. Our church is located at the corner of Mono Way, Highway 108 and Peaceful Valley Road in East Sonora, California. The Church with the Crosses. Our weekly worship service begins at 9.45 a.m. We would be delighted to have you join us as we worship Almighty God, explore His Word, and fellowship in Christian love. If you would like a copy of today's message, or more information about Oak Hill, please visit our website at oakhillopc.org.